Okay. This young man we have been introduced to before. We're in chapter 9. I've scooted over a bit more about the list of battles. But let's go into chapter 9. David asked, generally, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. Remember the name. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. Oh my goodness, that's rain. Wow. And how. Now, we've already been introduced to Mephibosheth. And at a, the age of just five years old, he suddenly loses his dad and his grandfather in that horrible situation where Saul falls on his, suit, uh, his sword. Now, his nurse, assuming, which would have been a good assumption, was that they would try and find the young prince Mephibosheth, as he now was, and would seek him out to kill him. She picks him up, runs, but drops him. Never a good move. And he ends up lame in both feet, and it's a permanent condition. So when David is made aware of the existence of this young man, he remembers that he'd made a promise to Jonathan to look after any one of his family. Now, I want you to note a few things about this. Ziba does not, first of all, call the young man by name. He only lists his most obvious problem. He's lame. Do you ever feel people do that with you? Oh, you know, it's so-and-so, the one with the... And they never really register you as a person, only as a problem. And I think we need to be very careful as Christians to look beyond the problem to the person. The inference of Zeba is, it does not matter now. He is of no use to you or anyone. You have no need to even remember a promise made so long ago. In other words, he's not going to remember. Really? I have a funny feeling that people in that situation would have remembered very, very well. Thank you very much. But he was being reinforced by Zeba, who was supposed to be looking after him, that he have, was of no consequence. Mephibosheth, he's lived in Lodibar. And the name Lodibar means no pasture. Who wants to voluntarily live in a place called no pasture? He himself has made sure that he's out of the way. It's dry, dusty desert, a backwater place. David demands that Mephibosheth is brought to the palace and is given full rights and honour. Let's pick that up. Verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. must have been tricky when he's lame. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul 
and you will always eat at my table. Wow. Restoration of full rights. But look at his response. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? When you've been pushed down long enough, you start to believe it, don't you? You start to believe it. Verse 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. This was not an empty promise. I'm giving you everything, but no way of actually benefiting. He made sure that Mephibosheth would benefit from this wonderful change. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. The scripture just tells us Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so there is enough staff to look after Mephibosheth. Let me tell you, when you eat at a king's table, being lame is nowhere near as important as it once might have been. If you can sit at a table which might look like that, beautifully decorated, people are not interested in your legs. They're interested in you as the person. And sometimes I think it's human nature for us to maximize what we see as the big problem and others, and certainly God, no longer notices. He doesn't take the lameness away. It's just not the problem he thought it once was. Yeah? Okay. Points to ponder. Are there any promises? Okay. Are there promises you've made but not yet kept? Oh. Are you in a position to make restitution? It doesn't actually matter how long the gap has been between the promise and the restitution. And I wonder would others consider you trustworthy? Or do they possibly think of you, or they're the one that don't keep their promises? They say they're going to do things, you know, unreliable. Can't trust them. Oh, let us not be people who are considered untrustworthy. Now, this is the point I told you I'm going to give you a bonus section because I think it's important. When we've got... This is the point. He's restored Mephibosheth. He's got unity in the land. He's sorted out the enemies. He's at rest. Yes? That is the most dangerous point for David. Because at the top of this arch, on our flip chart, he is now heading down. Look at that terrible verse at the opening of 2 Samuel chapter 11. First 12 words. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Oh. Oh. The New Living Translation of that reads, when kings normally go out to war. So the writer of 2 Samuel is making the point, David is now doing something abnormal. David sends Joab, his commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. This is a turnaround in David's fortunes. It's a very interesting slide. Who are you when no one is watching? 
my army's gone off to war, I'm in Jerusalem, I'm a king who is essentially twiddling my thumbs. Should have gone off to lead his people, but he stays behind. Who are you when no one is actually watching? There are many images and paintings of this particular part of David's life, but I thought this was very interesting. I hope you can see it from there. David is on the top of his palace, and he's just leaning, looking out, and there, very carefully painted, is a woman called Bathsheba. Now, it was not uncommon to bathe on the roof of your house, provided you weren't overlooked. Yes? She probably thought, it's spring, everyone's gone off, my husband's gone off, um, I can have a bath and no one's going to notice. Of course, David is higher up than she is and can quite clearly see. Now, I was once running a marriage seminar. It was very interesting. A residential weekend away. We had great fun. And there was one point where I took the ladies on one side and had a chat with them, and John took the men, and then we swapped. Now, the women were quite happy to talk to John, because the women will talk for England, Wales, and most of Scotland as well. But the men, you try and get men talking about relationships, especially in front of other men. It was not easy. But one question changed the whole atmosphere. And one guy had the complete bravery to say to me, Pat, I know it's sometimes wrong, but how long can a look be? And I said, how long can a look be? And I said, what do you mean? He said, there are plenty of beautiful women out there. It's hard not to look. How long do I have to wait until I have to stop looking? <laughs> I thought it was a very brave and very honest question. He's saying, yeah, sometimes I look, but it's, am I continuing to look? And what's happening in that moment? David looked, and he looked hard. He is physically above, but as king, he considers himself morally above. This is where our phrase, the divine right of kings, comes into play. He thinks he can get away with anything. Let's read chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The man said, oh, sorry, the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone, here we go, so he's sending someone off again, to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife, I feel like it should be underlined, don't you, of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She'd purified herself for her uncleanness. Um, okay, for those of you who want to know why that little phrase was put in, it was law under Moses 
that if a woman actually was having a period, she could not have intercourse. That's all that means. She's not being horrible. She just got past the point of a period. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying three little words. I am pregnant. Oh, boy. David has a big problem. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war's going. This is small talk from a king. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. What? Go and have a bath? Go and get... Oh, so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. What's David trying to do? Back from wars, lovely to see my wife. Let's have intercourse. She gets pregnant. Oh, good. Yeah. Uriah's not playing ball. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Oh, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. The schemes of a king are falling apart here, aren't they? So David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. In other words, get out for a minute, I need to think. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day, oh, I'm the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. Oh, okay, that's going to work, isn't it? But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst the master servants and he did not go home. This guy is stubborn. Now we get worse. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. That is the order of a king. Let him die. So while Joab had the city under siege and put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite also died. Now, what's David doing? The slide downwards starts. He abandons his purpose as king by staying home from war when he should have been leading them. He focused on his own desires. She was beautiful. And when temptation came, he looked rather than turned away. He deliberately sinned. He knew it was wrong. His own servant had said, oh, she's married to so-and-so. He tries to cover up his sin, so not his son, his sin, by deceiving others, yeah, multiple times. Do you ever find that when somebody does something wrong and then lies to cover it up, it never finishes at just one? And then he commits murder to continue the cover-up. Look at the next verse. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close? 
Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed so-and-so? And go on. So the messenger sets out, and when he arrives, he tells David everything. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. What? When Saul dies, he's greatly grieved. When Jonathan dies, he's greatly grieved. When Abner dies, he's greatly grieved. When Ishbosheth is murdered, he's greatly grieved. When Uriah dies, don't let this upset you. Awful. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Isn't that awful? Do you know what had happened? To cover up the sin of adultery, David's spirit has become desensitized to murder. You often find that. People who habitually sin and do not know how to repent become insensitive to what they're actually doing. How do you tell a king he's wrong? How do you tell anyone in power that they're wrong, but particularly a king? Now, opening verses of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Really? Nathan. Nathan, who has got it so horribly wrong with the stuff over the temple. Yeah, go ahead, the Lord is with you. And God says, no, 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 no. I never said that to you. So God says to Nathan, I want you to go and talk to David. Really? You want me? Uh, What do you want me to tell him? What I tell you. Oh my goodness, I bet you wish he wasn't prophet that day. And what he decides to do is to tell him a story. This is a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and he grew up with him and his children, shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. In other words, he's nicked somebody else's lamb, not prepared to sacrifice his own. David, verse 5, burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Sometimes that would be called righteous anger. I think it's called guilt. Yes? Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your... Your what? Yeah. She never was his own though, was she? Not yet. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. That's interesting, isn't it? David physically hadn't killed him, 
But Nathan says, as far as God was concerned, you used the Ammonite sword and you did it. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And look at this damning, damning judgment. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Whoa. Has the slide started with David? He's been found out. He's tried every which way to cover this up. And Nathan calls him out. You are the man. I wonder, do we condemn character flaws in others? Which friends or family members do you find it easy to criticize? Oh, no one is meeting my eye on that one here. I wonder what would happen if you could truly understand their feelings. If you condemn others, might you also be condemning similar traits in yourself? I'll only say this a little bit. As a counsellor, sometimes we know that clients will come and just dump all this stuff on you. And actually, while they're pointing at you, they're telling you more about themselves than the problem. And in trying to push it, look at them, look at them, look at them, they're trying to make us as counsellors forget that they're in the room. Ever so sorry for people? Doesn't work. Counsellors, we're trained to watch everything. Everything. Now, we're nearly there. Three back. Yeah, absolutely right. If you point out, you've usually got three fingers pointing back at you. But those three fingers you try to hide. Exactly. Yes. Chris. Chris. Hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. Nearly there, folks. Thank you for still being here and still being with me. The immediate consequence of Nathan's calling David out is that he repents. But it doesn't mean that Bathsheba is suddenly no longer pregnant. She still is. So she's a widow, but she's pregnant. She's brought into the palace, and David actually marries her. Not from any sense of, oh gosh, I better get married to this one quick. But he chooses to marry her, but he does repent. And the child is born. We have no name for this little boy. I think it was a boy. The child becomes very, very seriously ill. And David pleads with God for the life of this child. Remember, he's got many others already, but this one is special because it is the child of him and Bathsheba. And he fasts and he mourns. And then suddenly this poor child dies. A lovely, horrible age. Just seven days. And they're terrified to tell the king. 
But as soon as they do, he takes off all of the garments of mourning and gets on. Basically, he said, God wasn't. I prayed, and maybe it could have turned around, but now that it's actually happened, I need to move on. You might think it's very callous. Verse 22, David answers, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, when I die, I'll meet him, but there's no way he's coming back to me. And at that point, he goes into Bathsheba and comforts her in the best way that a husband and wife can comfort one another. It's an interesting principle, though. You pray and pray and pray and pray, and then if there is a final no, nagging doesn't help at that point, and that's what it would have become. And he would have been left locked into this, why did my son die? Why did my son die? But he doesn't. He honours God and said, if God wanted to, he could have, but he didn't, so that's it. That is a really hard position to come to in prayer. But David actually is a good example at this point. During this time, we read in the book of Psalms that David penned one psalm in particular. Psalm 51. Let me read it to you. It's a very short one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I should be clean. Wash me and I should be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot up my iniquity. I love this verse. Create in me a pure heart. O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices and bulls will be offered on your altar. That's an amazing psalm. But when you look at it in the context, that it was written immediately at the time that David was having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Doesn't that come to life? I want to do one more thing with you. Getting ready for next week. Pop over into chapter 13. In the course of time, Amnon, Amnon is David's firstborn son. Son of David fell in love with Tamar, 
the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Tamar and Absalom are blood siblings, so they're from the same mother. Yeah? There are three Tamars in Scripture. There's one in Genesis 38. And then Absalom's daughter, he also names Tamar, but this is the one we find here. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Who needs friends like this? Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. Now, that's not going to take two minutes, is it? Anyone who's made bread? Takes a while. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So she goes down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. And then she took the pan and served him the bread. But he refused to eat. How many of you have ever made a lovely meal? And then the person simply, I don't want that. It's horrible. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. That's really important. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I eat it from your hand. So Tamar takes the bread she prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace and what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And he said to her, get up and get out. I wish I could say that never happens in modern society. Rape happens, but also the thought of having somebody forcing yourselves on them, and then as soon as it happens, you hate them, is also tragically common. Verse 16, No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. Why? Because now she was no longer a virgin, but she was a princess. There was no chance of a good marriage. None at all. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So the servant put her out, bolted the door. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. She could no longer wear that garment. So she would have to declare to everyone that she was no longer a virgin. Tamar also put ashes on her head, tore the robe she was wearing, and she put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? He must have had an idea that something was up. And what is his response? Poor love. 
Oh, I'm so sorry. What does he say? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to skip that one for next week. I wonder what Absalom is up to. How can you say to someone who's just been raped, don't take this to heart? Horrendous. But we're going to leave it there. Who's got just one thing? Or have been so caught up with the drama of this one? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Very good point. User was killed by God for touching the ark when he wasn't allowed to. It's not fair. But there are rules. I think, however harsh we may think that is, we also have to take on board the mercy of God at the number of times he does forgive us that we probably don't even realise. I mess up on probably an hourly basis, but I also try and repent fairly quick. And it's the mercy of God that leads us and the kindness that leads us to repentance. But yeah, it doesn't sound fair. Thank you. Anything else? Yes, Nadia. Um, thank you, Lord. I just said, you know, you can take the race from um, chapter 9 when David calls for the more silver. When David calls for uh, Jonathan's son. Yeah? yeah. Mephibosheth. Yes, yeah. And he says, um, I'll surely show you kindness for the sake of your father. Yeah. That really challenges they now. Um, he's, he has been called and been given all these things, but not for what he himself has done, but for the sake of what he's done. Yeah. And the challenge to me was, can that be done for my kids when I'm gone? What legacy am I leaving for my kids? So it has really been challenging me since yesterday, thinking along those lines. Yeah. Like possibly, I'm not here. Can my something good to say will be done for my Wow. Yes. Fascinating. Going back to the story of Mephibosheth, what kind of a legacy are we leaving to our children that other people would honour them because of us? Yeah. I'm afraid the older I get, the more I'm aware of legacy. Yes. Being 24 still is hard, you know. One more thing, and then I must let you go. And the sun has come out, so hey, thank you for being with me through the rain. So that was okay. One more. No? To look at the person, not what they are. Look at the person, not the problem. Yeah, yeah. the story of Mephibosheth is a favourite one of mine. I preached on it individually a number of times. But it's true. It's true. I mean, we walk into a room, and particularly if you're walking into a room where most people don't know you, we go in thinking, what are they going to notice first? Now, I think that is common to human nature, but I'm afraid it's horribly common to women because we feel judged all the time. Oh, you know, that person with the... 
I mean, John, bless his heart, he's a wonderful guy, but he does numbers and computer codes and everything. What he's not very good on is names. So we said, that person you were talking to in church last Sunday, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I need a little bit more information. But it's interesting to see what kind of characteristics he pulls out to help me. To, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. That's so-and-so. If I know, I'm more likely to remember names. He does the phone numbers. Okay. Next week... I can't even remember what I want you to read next week, but quite a lot, I think. Ah, yes, here we go. <gasps> Big one, 13 to 24. What we're doing next week is we're going to hopefully conclude quite a bit of David. We always knew that the David would be the chunky stuff, wouldn't we? Before we move on more to Solomon. But 13 to 24, that's in your notes, so don't panic. Thank you for being here. Notes are down here. Please take a response form. I really appreciate it. And if you could get it back to me in some way before the eighth session. Everyone happy? Yeah. Thank you, Richard.